Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. The good part of having the words printed in your bulletin is you don't have to find where Zephaniah is in your Bible. 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time I will gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Lord, help us to see in your word your amazing love for us. Lord, I pray that you would do tonight um, at this congregation with these friends what you did this morning. Um, in our lives, Lord, as um, our other... Um, campus gathered and you showed up, God, and you showed us your love. And I pray you do that tonight. Um, Lord, no matter where, um, where we're coming from tonight, um, I don't know. I don't know where people are coming from, but you do. And you know exactly what they need. And the one thing I know is true is they need your love. They need to be convinced of your love. And so I pray that you would do that. Show us the overwhelming love of our Father that we see manifested in the coming of Christ Jesus. Um, empower your word, Lord, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are um, in the midst of an Advent series where we are meditating on the uh, traditional themes of Advent, which are uh, hope, love, joy, and peace. If you, you, know, you do an Advent wreath, each of those candles uh, represents one of those themes. And the first is hope. And uh, last week uh, you heard a wonderful message from Marshall um, about that, about the theme of hope. Uh, this evening in the second Sunday of Advent, our theme is love, the Advent of love. So, does God love you? And um, when I, what I mean by love is, is I mean love. Not does He tolerate you, not does He pity you, uh, not even does He accept you, put up with you. Does God love you? Now, of course, we know the answer. We've, uh, we've been taught that since childhood, you know. Jesus loves me, this I know, and so forth. We know the answer, but oh, how hard it is to believe that answer and apply that answer 
to our lives. Either we struggle, some of you are here, either we struggle to believe it at all. Like some people just don't, they don't even think that it could be possible on a conceptual level that God would love them. Or um, for a lot of us, we struggle to believe it in its fullest. We, we have this concept of God's love, but a true, yes, God's into me. God loves me. He delights in me in its fullest way. Either way, we struggle with this, and this is a struggle common to all of us. One of my seminary professors uh, likes to tell the story of his first calling out of seminary. He, was, uh, he, he moved to a, a small congregation and uh, did what a lot of young um, a lot of young guys out of seminary do just had you know had enough had just enough knowledge to be dangerous and uh, thought uh, too highly of himself um, and and he moves into this small church and immediately starts diagnosing all of their problems and issues and uh, struggles and sins and idols and all these things he, he's got them all figured out and, and in one of his first sermons he just unloads on this congregation um, just lets them have it and um, and calling them out and all their issues and all that good stuff. And after the service, um, an old lady walks up to him and had been in the congregation for a long time, and she points a shaking finger in his face and says to him, um, I've been fighting my whole life to believe God loves me, and I'm not going to let you convince me otherwise. And he said it was just this moment um, for him as a preacher um, that was formative um, to the way he pastored, to the way he preached, and all this stuff. And he, and he shares that story uh, with, with young seminarians uh, to, in, in our training as a way to warn us about arrogance and harshness and stuff like that. But the, the, the story always stuck with me, not necessarily, because of, um, not necessarily because of the lessons to me as a preacher, but because of the way this dear old saint speaks of her journey of the Christian faith as a lifelong fight to believe that God loves her. And you know, the longer I'm in ministry and the longer I personally do this thing called Christianity, the more I sympathize with that. So much of my job, so much of Marshall's job as a pastor is trying to convince God's people that God actually loves them. It's amazing to me. Um, how, how, how many times the, the counseling session or even just the random offhanded encounter ends with me trying to convince a child of God that God actually loves them. And I'm amazed in my own journey as a follower of Jesus, as a child of God, how much my journey is trying to believe that God loves me. It's a fight for all of us. And one of my go-to passages of Scripture is the one we're looking at this evening. I love all six verses that I, that I read, um, but I really wanted to focus in on that famous one, the most famous one, the one you've probably out of all, if you've ever come across Zephaniah, it's, 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 it's that amazing promise of verse 17. Lord, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I wonder if this Advent season you could actually believe that those words are true for you. I want us to consider them in two ways. The nature of God's love and then the fulfillment of God's love. So the nature of God's love. 
This is by far the most famous passage in Zephaniah. Um, you, you, you might be familiar with it, um, especially again, like I said, that verse 17. And so because of that, when people think of the book of Zephaniah, they think of it as this beautiful, uh, poetic prophecy of God's love. But you need to know um, that this passage actually feels out of place with, to the rest of the book. Uh, Zephaniah uh, prophesied during an incredibly dark time in Israel's history. Um, idolatry and rebellion and wickedness were running rampant. And God sends Zephaniah the prophet with a harsh, and I do mean harsh, rebuke for his people. So the book, and you can read it, it's just three chapters, you can go read it tonight. The book is just one um, scathing warning and judgment for his people, except for these last six verses. At the end of Zephaniah's prophecy, it takes this unexpected turn from some of the harshest words that we read in the Bible from God to some of the most tender, intimate, and affectionate words that we read in the Bible from God. And that peculiar flow, even the outline of the book of Zephaniah, is trying to convey an important message. And the message is this, that when it is all said and done, love is destined to be the enduring word from the Lord. What does God have to say to His people? The conclusion of Zephaniah is a God who, despite the rebellion of His people, despite um, what His people deserve, despite their rampant wickedness, despite realities of judgment and wrath, despite all these things, it is as if God cannot help Himself. He, he simply cannot not love them. And again, when I say love, I mean love. Like actually loves his people. Look at verse 17 and spend some time just meditating on these amazing words because it's really going to challenge our conceptions of what it means to be loved by God. Consider the nature of those three he will statements there. He will Rejoice over you with gladness. It's rejoice with gladness. That's compounded joy. He's not just rejoicing. He's rejoicing with joy. He's rejoicing with gladness. Do you know what that is? You know what it's describing? It's giddiness. It's divine giddiness. And it's all over you. He will rejoice over you. He is giddy over you with gladness. It says, He will quiet you with His love. That is a love so tender and intimate and affectionate that it is literally able to silence you. Uh, we know, many of us know, what um, it's like to be silent out of fear. Out of fear or abuse. Um, I don't want to say anything because I fear repercussions. But it is a rare thing to be silenced because of love. I am so loved that it has left me speechless. That you can't speak because you are so overwhelmed by how much you are loved. That's what this is saying. He will silence you with how much he loves you. It says he will exalt over you with loud singing. Do you, do you know what that's saying? That is the relationship between God and his people reversed. 
we aren't singing our love and praise to him. He is singing it to us. I mean, think about that. Exalt with loud singing. Doesn't that sound like something out of the Psalms that we should be doing to God? Doesn't that sound like a verse in the Psalms, like maybe a call to worship that we would use? Exalt with loud singing. And it is. It is fitting. It is something we should do to God. But here it is God exalting, and the word means what it says. Here it is God praising you, exalting over you with loud singing. Now, the point I'm trying to make in dwelling here is that there is something about this passage that should almost feel uncomfortable. It's one thing to say, God loves us. We can handle that in some distant, conceptual way. But this description of God's love should feel irreverent. That the God of the universe is giddy over me? That, that he exalts over me? That he, that he praises me? That the thought of me causes him to sing? That feels disrespectful to even say about God. But that's what we are invited to imagine here to use the language from last week's sermon, and that's what we need. We don't need a theoretical and generic vision of God's love. We need a vision of God's love that will make us squirm, uncomfortable. So let's get uncomfortable with this. Let me just say what you should be thinking about these words. Um, this verse doesn't sound like a description of God. It sounds like a lover. Don't those words sound like a lover? writing to his beloved. And as irreverent as that may feel, the Bible actually invites you to see God in this way. Of course, he is the God who causes you to tremble in the presence of his holiness, of course. And he is at the same time the God who causes us to tremble in the presence of his affection, like lovers tremble on a wedding night. Why do you think Song of Solomon is in the Bible? Do you find it odd that our sacred inspired scriptures includes the poetry of a lover reveling in sexual exploration? And no, evangelical church, that is not just a sex manual for the church. It's there for a reason. So, are you ready to get really uncomfortable? We believe that God is both the author and subject of scripture. Um, that he is, we believe, as the, as the storybook Bible says, we believe that every story whispers his name. Um, we believe that every word is a new, unique glimpse into who God is, into the story of God. And yes, we believe Song of Solomon is in the Bible. Which means he isn't just the true and better Abraham. He isn't just the true and better Moses. He isn't just the true and better David. He is the true and better Solomon. He is the true and better lover of your soul. The deepest levels of intimacy and rapture within the act of sex are given as a blessed gift of God as a foretaste of his intimate rapturous love of his people. Let me quote someone respectful here so you don't think I'm a heretic. St. <laughs> Augustine, I think we'd all agree. Um, that dude knew what he was talking about. He's the most influential theologian in the history of Christendom. This is how he describes his relationship with God, okay? This is Augustine. 
um, from his journals, his con confessions, which I commend to you, but essentially his journals to God. You pierced my heart and I fell in love with you. What do I find in your love? A touch, a voice, a fragrance, an embrace, which is for my inmost being. Something that is not limited by space, something not snatched away from me by passing time, something no wind will blow away from me its scent, something I may savor undiminished, a union from which nothing can tear me away. My goodness, it's like, it, it like will cause you to blush. Is he talking to God or his lover? And the answer is yes. Can you conceive of God this way? Like get uncomfortable with his love. Can you conceive of him this way or are you too dignified? Or are you too hardened by, yes, admittedly failed loves in your life? Perhaps abusive visions of love in your life. Have they hardened you too much to conceive of God this way? Are you too macho of a man? Are you too independent of a woman? Are you too PCA? Performed. <laughs> if your theology doesn't have room for a God like this, then your theology is lacking because this is who our God is. And this is only proven true when this prophecy actually comes to pass. If you think that this vision of God's love that we see in Zephaniah is uncomfortable, just wait until it comes to fruition. Wait until he makes good on these promises. Let's look at the fulfillment of God's love. Now we move to Advent. Notice something here, not just about verse 17, but really the whole passage. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He will, or it switches to the personal, I will gather those who mourn for the festival. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all of your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise. At that time, at that day, I will bring you in. I will, I will, I will on that day, in that day. This promise of love is a promise of anticipation. He will do something that will both prove and accomplish his deep affectionate love for his people. That that it will not just remain in the ethereal heavenlies, but he will do something that concretely will prove and make real these promises of love. So what does he do? He comes for his beloved. He himself comes. He himself comes for his bride so enraptured by his love for his people that he chooses the most inconceivable and unbecoming act we could ever imagine a God ever doing. An act that, that every other religion um, at best laughs at and at worst calls us heretical and irreverent forever talking about God this way. God becomes man that he might actually love us the way Zephaniah says he loves us. The manifestation of his love, meaning when this love actually comes to pass that day, that manifestation is even more uncomfortable than the description of his love. 
In other words, if you think it's irreverent to speak of God loving us with the intimacy of a lover, consider the uncomfortable reality of the incarnation. Listen, I love the song Silent Night more than anyone, but my goodness does it have a way of taking the edge off the incarnation. I, I have a newborn in my home. Silent Night is a lie. <laughs> It was a very loud night because God needed breast milk and a diaper change. God needed that. There were not radiant beams from thy holy face on that night. <laughs> thy holy face was covered with that white stuff that babies have when they are born. I don't, I don't, know what it, I don't even know what that stuff's called. <laughs> And this is only the beginning of the scandal of the incarnation of God's love that would find its fulfillment in the incarnate Son of God standing trial. You want to talk about ridiculous? The judge of heaven and earth submitting himself to the trial of man and the sentence of man. You want to talk about scandalous and crazy, mocked, beaten, and tortured, the radiance of God's glory being shamed by earth. The ultimate scandal of all, the darkness of Calvary, that the author of life succumbing to death. Theologians call it the humiliation of Christ for a reason, because this is humiliating. Why? Why would God succumb to this? Because God is in love. And there is nothing he will not do for his beloved. And this is the only way to have his beloved. Return to verse 17 one more time. The Lord your God is in your midst. You do realize that should be terrifying, right? In the very beginning uh, in Genesis, we are told that the Lord God was in the midst of the garden with Adam and Eve, humanity and God dwelling together. But after their sin, it says they hid from God in the midst of the trees. God asked them where they, why they were hiding from him, and they said that they heard the sound of him in their midst, and they were terrified, as well they should be. To be in the midst of a holy God is the greatest fear any sinner could ever have. And yet, Zephaniah 3.17 speaks of the midst of God as our greatest delight. How is this so? Jesus. Jesus transforms God in our midst from terror to ecstasy. If you look at the promises to us in verse 17 that Zephaniah gives us, they are the antithesis of what Jesus endured. Jesus was despised and rejected so that God might rejoice over you with gladness. Jesus screamed in utter eternal agony so that God might quiet you with his love. Jesus had God's wrath poured out over him so that God might exalt over you. We're singing. So when Zephaniah promises such scandalous love from God, it would mean equally scandalous suffering for God. And yet, apparently, you are worth it. Apparently, he is so in love that there is nothing he will not do for his beloved there is nothing he will not do for his lover. Will you fight to believe that truth this Advent season? 
like that old lady devoting a lifetime fighting to believe that God loved her. Will you fight to do the same? There's nothing, listen, there's nothing more He can do to prove His love. The fight now belongs to us to believe Him. But ultimately, thankfully, it, it honestly it doesn't matter. It's the good news. His love for you is not contingent upon your ability to believe it and internalize it. It just is. Does God love you? I started that sermon. I started the sermon that, by asking you that question. Does God love you? But honestly, it's not your question to answer. It's God's question to answer, and His answer is yes. So a better question would be, will you fight to believe what God has said? In Jesus, God has answered the question. With the advent of Jesus, God has answered this ultimate question that is lingering in the hearts of everyone. Does God love me? And in Jesus, the answer is yes. Now, fight to believe his answer. Let me pray. Help us to believe it, God. Um, I confess with all of us that, Lord, it, it is a lifelong journey. To believe. Um, and we do believe. Help our unbelief. Overwhelm us. Surprise us this evening by how much you love us. And I pray um, for this Advent season in particular that um, the community of, of TCPC would be enraptured by your love. Show us now in your holy sacrament a glimpse of your love. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.